Back as I was going through my seminary years, about 20 years ago, I was driving through the Milwaukee metro area, and someone pulled out right in front of me. Now, thankfully, I was able to slam on my brakes and avoid hitting them with my beautiful 1987 Toyota Supra. Great car. I didn't hit them, but when I slammed on my brakes, I noticed something unusual. A bunch of smoke came out from where my brakes are, and there was a squealing noise that can only be compared to a legion of pigs. So I figured either I need to get a Catholic priest to take a look at my car, or I need to take it to the brake shop. Now, by that time in my life, I had done several, several brake jobs, um, both rotors, drums, brake pads, even brake calipers, for those who know how the whole system works. I was well aware of how to do brakes on my own. I was kind of taught that from a young age. But being at seminary, I didn't have a garage, I didn't have the tools, so I reluctantly went to a brake shop, and I immediately grew skeptical. As they looked at my car, the, the person came out to me and they said, oh, bad news. This car is so bad, it's not safe for you to go anywhere. We can't let you drive away with the car in this condition. They said, we can fix it for you, but we're going to have to have someone drive across town to get a special part so that they can come back and replace it. And so, like, what am I going to say? A young 20-something, and I'm kind of held hostage at this brake shop, so I say, do what you got to do, I guess. And then I'll never forget the feeling of when they handed me the bill. Now, I knew what I would charge a person if I were doing an honest brake job, and this was not an honest charge for an honest, honest brake job. It was around $300, which to a 20-something seminary student was a lot, and I think it's still a lot today to charge for a brake job. And I just remember as I was walking out of that place with that empty feeling in my stomach, I just had this feeling in my heart. I was like, I never want to go back. I will never go back to that place again. And I'm wondering if there's a place that's like that for you. Maybe it's a restaurant and the food was undercooked or the service was so slow, you walked out with your significant other and you said, Phew, we are never going back there again. I see a lot of you whispering to each other right now. I've been there too. For some of you, maybe it's an airline where you got a really good deal on an airline and you flew, but after that you were like, I know the competition is more expensive, but we are never flying this airline again. What breaks my heart is that some people have said this of church. They went through some sort of experience or they saw something unfold. And their reaction walking away was, I will never go back there again. And yet, here you are. <laughs> well, in case you're new, this is part four of a series that we are calling Asking for a Friend. And the big idea that we're getting into is just asking questions that people might have about faith. They might have these questions about God, but maybe they're too intimidated or too bashful to ask them. So we've been looking at honest questions like, why do we trust the Bible? Or why are there hypocrites in the church? And this week, here's the question we're going to tackle. Do I really need a church? Now, I know this is kind of ironic because this might feel like walking into a car dealership and asking, do I need a new car? But here's my, 
my goal for today. I'm not bringing any chips to the table. I'm just going to kind of sit here and watch the hand unfold. I'll guide you through the answer to this question. And mo- as, much, as much as I can, I want to get out of the way and simply let Jesus, through his words, tell us what church really should be about and whether or not we really need it. And what you're going to see today as Jesus answers this question is you're going to see two things. Really, the answer to this question depends on what you mean by two words. What do you mean by need? Do I really need a church? Well, it depends. What do you mean by need? Depending on what you mean by need, the answer could be yes or no. And also, what do you mean by church? Like, what do you, are you thinking an institution, an organization, a hierarchy of authority? Like, what do you envision with that word church? And rather than me unpacking all of this at the beginning of the sermon, I'm just going to let Jesus' words help us give a clear definition for what we really need and how he envisioned his church, a church, to work. So what we're going to do is look at John chapter 13. And if you have time this week, John chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, it's a really interesting section where you get a a close look at the final conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night before his death. He was eating the Passover meal with them. And in John chapter 13, there's this really awkward moment. Have you ever had this awkward family moment where you're having this nice meal and then all of a sudden someone starts talking about politics? Like, ah, we were having so much fun and you went there. Well, as Jesus was eating the meal, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? We were having a good time. And why are you saying this? And, and so someone whispers to John, John, ask him who it is. And so John leans over to Jesus. Hey, who are you talking about? Who is this person who's going to betray you? And Jesus was super cryptic and super weird. And then he said to everyone, Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And they didn't know what that meant. They were thinking, well, Judas was the check writer, so is, is he asking Judas to pay the tab? Because they're in someone else's house. So go pay the tab, go pay the bill, um, go help the, the poor. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about, but here's what happened. John chapter 13, 31, Judas left and Judas was gone, but the thing to know is that Jesus let him go. Jesus knew full well what Judas was intending to do. He was not going to pay the tab. He was going to collect some silver for betraying Jesus. He was about to go tell the Jewish leaders exactly where they would be able to find Jesus that evening so they could arrest him and crucify him. Jesus in that moment could have said to the 11, everyone, arrest Judas. Peter, take out that sword that you hardly know how to use. Be careful with that thing. But get out your sword and arrest Judas. He's going to topple our whole plan. But instead, Jesus turns to Judas. He says, Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Jesus knew the moment Judas had left the building, that was the point of no return. Judas would tell the people where to find Jesus, and Jesus would be arrested. Yet Jesus let it happen. And then as Judas leaves the building, then Jesus turns to the remaining 11. He says, all right, I can trust you guys. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Now, now what is set in motion, 
Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And I know it's a lot of glories and glorifies, but what Jesus is saying is that now something has changed. Now something is different. And I'm sure the 11 were like, what do you mean? You've already been glorified. You're already famous. For three years now, Jesus has been amazing crowds with his depth of teaching. He's been healing people, even raising the dead. And they're thinking, what do you mean? If all of that didn't make you famous or glorified, how would Judas paying the tab help? (laughs) But Jesus says, no, my glory was not in my fame. My glory was not wrapped up in what people thought about me. My glory is in what is about to happen. Now, I am glorified. Now, the wheels are set in motion for me to do what I came to do. And this is such good news for us. Because if Jesus came to fix all the little problems of the world, to heal people, to help people, to provide food, if if that was his job, his role, we would be struggling today to say, where is God? But Jesus came to do something so much greater then take away diseases and heal sicknesses. He came to restore souls. He came to resurrect those who were dead on the inside and bring them back to God. And the only way to do that was to let Judas walk out of the room so that Judas could betray him and ultimately lead to his death. So number one, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus' glory was in his sacrifice Sometimes you can be famous and not know your purpose. Jesus did not confuse famous with his purpose. Rather, he focused on his glory being his sacrifice for you and for me. So you ask me, do do I really need a church? Here's the thing. What we need is a sacrifice for our sins and a substitute for our righteousness. That is what we need. And that is what Jesus alone provides. He's going to elaborate on this, and he's going to draw the distinction between who he is and who his church is and what each one is for. And so as he talks about his glory, he then turns back to his disciples, his 11. He says, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know, because you don't know what's coming. My children, I will only be with you a little while longer. Judas is gone. I know where he's going. I'll only be here for a little bit. You will come and look for me just as I told the Jews, the others, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. More than just, guys, you're going to want to lay low for a couple weeks. He says, you do not have the ability to go where I am going. And they didn't understand. Toward the end of the meal, Peter stood up. I'll follow you wherever. We'll die with you. It's all good. It's all... Jesus is like, no. Even if you would die, you cannot do what I'm about to do. Because the sacrifice Jesus offered was so different than any sacrifice any other person could offer. Jesus is telling them, even if you try to help me do what I'm about to do, you will only take away from what I'm doing. Uh, Years later, the Apostle Paul would describe it this way. Just as one man, Adam, brought sin and death for all people, so also one man, Jesus, 
was able to take all sin and all death from all people into himself. Only one. And then Paul would also describe it this way, that the righteousness of the one man, Jesus, overflows into any. And if Peter had stepped in and said, I'll try to add to that, Jesus would say, Peter, your righteousness only takes away from what? From mine. This is part of that good news, that Jesus alone is the savior, the substitute for the world. That's the good news that we need. I'll put it this way. The gospel, the good news, the gospel does not need the church. The gospel does not need the church because number two, there was a gospel before there was a church. There was good news before there was a church because the gospel is the foundation. It's the gathering force of the church. The reason we're together isn't because some pastor or priest declared that you are now good. The reason we're here together is because God declared you're forgiven through Jesus, through him alone. That's the power. And the reason I want to bring this up is because, unfortunately, there are some who say that you can't be good with God unless you're good with the church. Now, being good with the church is an outward reflection of where you're at with God. But to say that a church is kind of holding back from you the gift of forgiveness until you do certain things is just not true. There was good news. There was forgiveness before there was a church. And this gospel is what gathers us together. So Peter, John, James, Bartholomew, we don't talk about Bartholomew enough. Bartholomew, you guys cannot go where I'm going, but there is something that I need you to do. There is something that you need you to do. John 13, 34, a new command I give you. Here's something new. Love one another. And I'm sure Bartholomew put down his wine cup. He's like, wait, we've heard this before. <laughs> Jesus several times had helped people understand the complicated law codes of the ancient Israelites, all the laws and ceremonies. And Jesus said, it's, 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 it's easy. There's only two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two, just keep those two th things straight and you're good. So Bartholomew is like, we've heard this before. Love one another as you would have one another love you. We get it. We get it. We get it. Jesus says, no, that, that, that's the bottom level. Like, be kind to others in a way that you hope they're kind to you. Is kind of, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. And that keeps a society together. But Jesus said, that will not keep my church together. My church has a higher calling. So I give you a new command, not just to love one another as you would have one another love you. But as I have loved you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And I'm sure Bartholomew is like, I'm not going to wash Peter's feet. <laughs> but that's what Jesus had just demonstrated to them. The rabbi, the savior of the world, had just gotten down on his hands and feet to wash, on his hands and knees, to wash the disciples' feet. That was a kind of self-sacrificing love that would become even greater within 24 hours. So a new command he gave to his church, love one another as I have loved you. Now, as I relate this to whether or not you need a church, let me just remind you of something important. Belief in Jesus gets you to heaven. This is so true of the person on the cross who cried out to Jesus in that final hour, 
remember me? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guess what? That guy never joined the church, but he was still with God in heaven. Belief in, in Jesus, faith in Jesus will get you to heaven. Do you need a church to, to, for that? No. You don't need a church to, to believe in Jesus. But what we do know is that when it comes to what you believe, the best metric for what you believe is how you live. Haven't you found this to be true? That sometimes you ask yourself, why did I do that? Or why did I say that? Or why am I so angry? Usually because it's on the inside, you have a belief that you are vulnerable and your own self-worth is at risk. And so you lash out, you try to get defensive, and you protect it because of something you believe on the inside. Often how you live is an earlier indicator that your beliefs are starting to veer away from where they should be. I put it this way for number three, how you love often reveals what you love. You've probably seen this in conversations with people. You know, you kind of talk to them once or twice a week and within a few sentences, it usually gets to the same place. They start talking about their grandkids. It's a good thing to love. Um, they start talking about the weather. It's a good thing to love or their, their cabin. It's a good thing. They start talking about the Vikings. The more interaction you have with someone, the more you can see how they live and how they, how they love. And sometimes that's the earliest indication from someone that you can get that, that maybe their beliefs are starting to veer away from where they should be. The th thing is, we don't often see this in ourselves. Like sometimes we'll be talking to someone and maybe you were talking to someone and you said something that you didn't even know was in there. You're like, wait a minute. Is that really coming out of me? Did I really say that? Did I really do that? Sometimes the, the way we live, the way we behave is the first indication of what we believe. So do you need a church? Well, you don't need a church to believe. But you do need people who are looking at how you live. Because if you want to hold on to that belief, you need people who can call you out and question you if what, how you love isn't reflecting what you should be loving. Jesus finishes it off this way. He says, love one another as I have loved you. By this, by this, everyone will know externally that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus, that's going to be hard. How do you love someone without condition? How do you get down on your hands and knees to wash someone's feet knowing that one of those 12 is going to betray you? How do you just keep loving and loving and doing what's best for another person even if they don't have your best in mind? Any of you ever struggle with that? Do you struggle to love the people whom Jesus loves? No? Good, me either. Now, we all struggle with this because there is a sinful nature inside of us that continually pulls us back to what is best for ourself. We conserve our energy for our own joy, for our own peace, for our own well-being. And it's really hard to continue to be other-focused. So it's okay to struggle with loving other people. It's going to be a part of life. 
And it's okay to acknowledge that and talk about it with the people around you. I'm really struggling. I'm struggling. I want to. I want to. But it's really hard. The danger is when we take this across the line to a refusal to love the people whom Jesus loves. I've found myself there, and I'm sure you have also, where a line was crossed and you just allowed anger and hatred to rule your mind. With every breath, you were like, I hope they get what's coming. You were waiting for justice to work itself out. You wanted their failure, failure so bad. And this is something, here's the thing, when it comes to refusing to love the people whom Jesus loves, the world will not call you out for that. The world will not call you out for putting limits on your love in any sort of way. In fact, what will you hear from the world? Well, yeah, stand up for yourself. Yeah, sue them. Yeah, get even. Yeah, wait till they're not looking. The world will never judge you or call you out for putting limits on your love. But it's only those who know God's love who can call you out when you're not showing God's love. The reason this is so important is because, again, belief, you don't need a church to help you have faith in Jesus, to to believe in Jesus. But if you want to hold on to that faith, the first indication that you're starting to let it go is by allowing hatred, allowing anger to have a place. And I believe this is one reason why many people can drift from faith. Maybe the first step drifting from a church is because they've allowed that unforgiveness to have a place. And when you place a condition on your love for other people, the unfortunate side effect is that in your mind, you also place a condition on God's love for you. The more you refuse to love other people, the more you distance yourself from the love and forgiveness that God wants to have for you. And it's only someone who knows God's love, the incredible, overflowing grace of God, who can look into your life and say, hey, it seems like you're kind of angry. And I love this. The people in my life who have called me out on this, I'm so thankful. Like, I'll be talking to them. I'll be venting with them. You know, and it's, and it's just person to person. So it's not like we're gossiping or anything. I'm just venting. Have you ever done that? I'm not gossiping. I'm just venting. But then I, I get through with my tirade of everything they did wrong and how upset and frustrated I am. And the best friends will say to me, okay, thanks for sharing. How can we pray for them? Ah, you went there, didn't you? But the best friends I have will not just go along and say, oh yeah, you should be angry. They will call me out when I'm not showing love for the people whom Jesus loves. So here's the thing that only a church can do. Only a church can disciple you with truth and grace. Only a a church can call you out when the love that God showed you isn't being shown through you. And they don't call it out like, oh, you're, you're a sinner, you're a horrible person. But they say, no, this isn't about earning God's favor. This is about reflecting the amazing, overflowing love and forgiveness that your Father in heaven has had for you. Don't you know what God gave Don't you know the depths of God's love for you? And then they can challenge you. Would you just take a teaspoon 
of what God gave you and extend it to this person who you're angry with. Only a church can disciple you and only the church, only those who know God can call you out when you're not showing God's love. So as, as you think about this whole topic, I know that this can be an emotional question for a lot of people. Do I really need a church? Do I really need the church? I would probably respond by asking you some questions. What do you mean by need? What do you mean by church? We don't need a, a church, a, a, hierarchical, a hierarchy organization that determines truth and teaching and doctrine. You know, the person on top gets to decide everything. We don't need that because we are branches and Jesus is the vine. But we do need people in our life that can see how our lives are reflecting our beliefs. And we do need people who can extend to us not just truth, calling us out, but also the grace to lead us back to the forgiveness that God has for us. So do I really need a church? Well, you don't need a church to believe. But most people, almost everyone, when it comes to daily life, they need a church to be discipled and to keep that belief strong. So this weekend, we're celebrating the faith of our eighth graders. And just as I think about this, one of the amazing things is that our eighth graders wouldn't be celebrating their faith if there was no church. Ultimately, we need the church to pass along the good news of what God has done for us. We need the church of the first century to copy all those manuscripts, risking their lives so that we would have a New Testament account of who Jesus was. We needed the, the church of the 1500s to make printable copies of the Bible. We needed the church of the 21st century to make Bible apps where we can hear about God from our pockets. We wouldn't be here without the church. So do we need the church? Well, in that sense, yes. And maybe what I hope is as you walk away from today, the question isn't just, well, do I really need a church? But your question is, how can I be the church? for this generation and the next? That's a good question to ask. So if you're meeting with your growth group this week, I, I hope you spend a little extra time with questions six and seven. It'll challenge you to think about how you can be even more discipled within your church family and what that looks like for you. But I hope you can come back next week. I don't want to give anything away, but I'll just say these last two weeks, we're going to get pretty dicey with our questions that we're asking for a friend. So I hope you can come back and join us. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of your church. I acknowledge the church isn't perfect because it's made up of people like, like me and, and like us. And as Ben man mentioned last week, there's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us where we can talk better than we can live. But at the heart of your church, it's not about who has authority or who says what is true. Really, the heart of your church is a good message of great joy, a message of forgiveness, a message where Jesus, his glory was not in his miracles or his fame. His glory was, was in his sacrifice. He really did take our place both in life and in death. And on that rock, your church was built. Help us to be a church that is faithful to our calling, 
that we would encourage each other in everyday life, that we would watch out for one another when our behavior starts to show that our beliefs have veered from where they should be. Give us truth coupled with grace so that we can restore one another and disciple one another closer to you, reflecting more and more your love for us in the world. So thank you, Father, for our time together today. Bless and keep us until we get to meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.